Join me in reading God's word. This is Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in, my, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Thus is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to your word, we do ask that you would renew our hearts, renew our minds. We want a renovation project to be underway in us as we encounter you through your very word. God breathed, God inspired. Lord, transform our hearts based upon your promises and may your promises to us be our joy. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. On this day, 77 years ago, the fate of the world hung upon a small strip of sand in a region of France known as Normandy. June 6th. 1944 was D-Day, do or die day. Would Hitler's vision of a 1,000-year Reich continue to march and spread over the world, or would the Allies break through the Nazis' shield wall of fortifications surrounding the continent and begin the liberation of Europe? The outcome on that day was far from certain as American and British and Canadian soldiers charged headlong across beaches now known by their code names, Omaha, Utah, Gold, Juno, and Sword. Only a two hours drive from Paris, I was able to go to those beaches several times and they are not at all like what I expected. Maybe you've been there. They're not what I expected. They're not like Gulf Shores, y'all. They're not like Orange Beach. They're very, very narrow strips of sand, of beach, along what is mostly a, a coast of cliffs. You can stand in the middle and look from one end to the beach to the other and see the cliffs on both sides. But if the beaches are very narrow in one sense, they feel very, very long in another there is often well over a football field's length of sand between the sea and the firm land, offering any cover. And that distance feels incredibly long when you imagine enemies on those hills 
and all those gun turrets firing down at you as you try to run across this beach. A good bit of the German fortifications and gun placements and barbed wire are even still there today for you to see. My favorite spot next to the American Cemetery, of course, my favorite spot is a place called Point Du Hawk. Point Du Hawk. It's a sheer cliffside that sticks out like the bow of a ship into the sea. It looks like the most unassailable point in the world. But on D-Day, 225 army rangers were given the mission of climbing those cliffs and taking that point. President Ronald Reagan gave a famous speech on that spot 40 years later, that if you go there, you can read all the plaques and you can read his entire speech. Reagan told the story of how the rangers in the boats below looked up and saw the enemy soldiers on the edge of the cliff shooting down at them with machine guns and throwing grenades, and the American rangers began to climb. They shot rope ladders over the face of these cliffs and began pulling themselves up. When one ranger fell, another would take his place. When one rope was cut, a ranger would grab another and begin his climb again. They climbed, shot back, and held their footing. Soon, one by one, the rangers pulled themselves over the top. And in seizing back the firm land at the top of these cliffs, Reagan said, they began to seize back the continent of Europe. 225 came here. After two days of fighting, only 90 could still bear arms. These 225 army rangers were bound together by a common mission. It was a mission of liberating a continent from the dark shadow of tyranny. And this past Memorial Day, we remembered them with gratitude, didn't we? For their commitment to that cause and to that mission. The book of Philippians begins with Paul doing something very similar. Remembering a church committed to the cause of Christ and his mission to the world. We see that beginning in verse 3. Look with me at verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. I thank my God in all my remembrance, Paul says, all my remembrance of you. I like that in England, they don't call it Memorial Day. They call it what? Remembrance Day. It is Remembrance Day. And more than Easter, more than Christmas, Remembrance Day is the one day of the year that the average Englishman will dare to darken the door of a church building. The churches will be full packed on Remembrance Sunday. And when the service is over, everyone will go in procession down to the local war memorial. Every town, every village has one. It has the names of all the dead from World War I and World War II written there. The whole town will gather around the memorial and the names will be read. Prayers will be said and wreaths laid. As the pastor of the only evangelical church for 150 square miles around, I was there presenting a wreath 
on behalf of our church in that ceremony. And afterwards, one of the local officials would recite these famous words. Maybe you know them. These famous words. They shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. And then the whole town responds, we will remember them. We remember the soldiers who gave their last full measure of devotion to safeguard our freedoms. We remember them with gratitude, but it is a, often a solemn, hang your head kind of remembrance, isn't it? Note how that contrasts so sharply with how Paul remembers the Philippians in verses three and four. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy, with joy. This isn't a head down, hand on your heart type of remembrance. This is a head up, arms outstretched in joy type of remembrance that Paul has of this church who was on a mission. There's a difference, isn't there? You know that difference, don't you? We know that difference. My family knows that difference because we have experienced it with you, our church family here at Alberta Baptist. We've been away for a while, if you didn't know that. We've been away for a while. A lot has happened while we were away planting churches in England and France. And in one sense, I feel a bit like Thomas Jefferson returning to America from France. What did I miss, y'all? What did, what did I miss? Uh, what's all changed since I've left? It seems like a lot has happened. I know that a lot has happened while I've been away. But Paul also knows that since he left the Philippians. Paul knows that a lot has happened in Philippi while he's been away. Paul, as he writes this letter, he is under house arrest in Rome because he is preaching the gospel. My family and I, we've been under virtual house arrest in Paris because of a pandemic. For a long time, we had to fill out French paperwork every time we wanted to leave the house, which made you really think twice, is it worth going out? Is it worth going out there? Is, it, is this trip really worth the paperwork that you have to fill out to, to do it? You'd ask yourself that. Our house arrest situation in Paris was quite different from Paul's in Rome. We weren't chained to anybody. But our hearts were united with Paul in this, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for y'all. Here is our first encounter of many with a word that will shape our summer together in the book of Philippians. And that word, you might have guessed, it's on the slide, that word is joy. Joy. Our theme for this series through Philippians is joy over circumstances. Joy over circumstances. Paul, from his house arrest in Rome, must have seen that joy was the need of the moment for the church in Philippi. He talks about it so much through this letter. From our semi-house arrest in Paris, I could sense that joy was the need of the moment 
for ABC as well. Joy over circumstances. Paul's going through some very difficult, very tough circumstances, and he talks about it throughout this letter. He's there in Rome in prison. That's not nice. That's not pleasant. Uh, And he knows there are people doing gospel ministry in ways that distress him out there free in the world. We'll see that next week. Uh, There are also co-laborers. Paul says, he says weeping that they are now enemies of the cross of Christ. We'll see that in Philippians as well. There are two ladies in the church who had a falling out with one another and are stirring up strife and contention in the church. Many of the circumstances in this letter are difficult ones. But joy is written over every single page and paragraph of Philippians. Quite literally, our journey through Philippians will take us the next 13 weeks. And nearly every message, we will see Paul use some form of the word joy. Nearly every time, it's there in the text. I don't have to make this up. God made this up. Joy. This is why Philippians is known as the epistle of joy. The letter of joy. It's a letter of joy triumphing over life's circumstances. Coming off a year full of difficult circumstances on a global scale, on a national scale, as well as in our church family, this is the word from God I believe we need. I was talking to my brother Cameron is here. He says his church is starting Philippians as well. Uh, In the fall, a lot of churches are starting Philippians because this is the word we need. Joy over our present circumstances. Because that is what God offers to us. As a church, we can have a joy that triumphs even over the worst of circumstances. As your new pastor, that's what I want us as a people to be known for. Most of all, we want to be known as a joyful, thankful church who delights to serve a strong and kind Savior in the Lord Jesus. We want to be a joyful people. We want to be like the Apostle Paul, known for our joy even when the chips are down and the circumstances are dire. Remember, Paul, very strange thing. What does he say? He says, now I rejoice in my suffering. I rejoice in my suffering. How strange. That sounds super strange to the rest of the world today. But Paul's not alone in saying it. James told Christians, consider it all joy when you encounter what? Various trials, hard things, difficult circumstances. Now that's an impossible thing to do until you begin to see your dire circumstances as opportunities. Opportunities to refocus yourself upon the true source of your joy. It's not your circumstances. That's not the source of your joy. Christ is the true source. Joy isn't based upon your circumstances or your performance. It is based upon a promise and a person. You won't find joy when times are tough until you embrace it as opportunity, as an opportunity to trust and believe in someone bigger than yourself. 
you need and I need joy's confidence. What's that, you say? I'm glad you asked. Cameron, I'm glad you asked. Paul tells us what that is in verse 6. Look with me at verse 6. Here's joy's confidence. Verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God has begun a good work in you. And no amount of adverse circumstances can stop him from finishing that work. That's a truth, isn't it? That's a truth that should spark joy in our hearts. Why? Because it is so not what we deserve. It's not what you deserve. It's not what I deserve. We looked at Ezekiel this morning, didn't we, Jacob? It's not what people deserve, is it? This is a truth that should spark joy because it is not what we deserve. We all deserve for the bad circumstances in our life to bear bad fruit in our hearts. Fruits like bitterness and anger and envy and judgmentalism. It's perfectly natural for bad weather to produce bad crops and for bad circumstances to bring out bad things from people's hearts. For proof, all you need to do is search the most people's Facebook archive for 2020. And you will find proof enough that bad circumstances bring out bad things from people's hearts. Bad circumstances very often bring out the worst in people. But it need not be that way with you. Not if you have confidence in the scripture's promise. Look at verse 6 again. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, we usually always hear that promise in a very personal way, don't we? As an individual whose heart has been won by Jesus, this verse rightly applies to me. It rightly applies to you. And it it just makes sense. If God began the impossibly hard work of transforming his enemies into his friends, doesn't it make sense that he will see it through to the end? If God set his hand to a work, it seems ridiculous for him to say, it just doesn't seem worth it anymore. (laughs) I've started it, but it doesn't seem worth it to finish it. An all-knowing God would have known whether the work was worth beginning before he started, right? He who began a good work in you knew beforehand exactly what it would cost him and all your failures that would come later. He saved you knowing all your sin. At no point does an all-knowing God say, this good work just isn't worth me finishing. You see, D-Day has already happened on a cosmic level. God has begun a good work. God has invaded a world in rebellion, and there is now no stopping his rescue mission. The light has stepped into our darkness, and the creator has made himself part of his creation, and he is on a mission to save us. D-Day has happened on a cosmic level 
but also on an individual level. God has invaded our lives individually, hasn't he? He has stormed our beaches one by one. He took the hill of our hearts. He is in the process of liberating us from sin's tyranny and bringing us back under his good and loving lordship one bit at a time, bit by bit. You realize though, in this illustration, we are the bad guys. We are the bad guys. We are the Nazis fortifying ourselves against the great power who's coming against us. We are the belligerent who was in the wrong. We're the Nazis in the story of God's great rescue mission. One of the surprising things uh, that happened to me while in Yorkshire was I grew to appreciate British comedy. British, a British sense of humor is very different from American sense of humor. There is one famous comedy sketch with two English actors playing Nazi soldiers in the trenches during World War II. One of them turns to the other and says, Hans, have you looked at our caps recently? No, not really. Why? The badges on our caps have human skulls on them. Hans, are we the baddies? <laughs> are we the bad guys? <laughs> the, the two of them argue this point back and forth for a while. Uh, Hans says, you've been listening to allied propaganda. Of course, they're going to say we're the bad guys. Yes, but they didn't get to design our uniforms, did they? <laughs> Why skulls, though? I can't imagine anything worse than skulls. And at that point, they look down, and the ashtray on their table is shaped like a skull. And they look over at a soldier in the trench, and he's drinking from a mug with a skull emblem on it. And there's another in the corner knitting a scarf with a skull on it. And they both look at each other, and the penny drops. And the truth finally dawns on them, and they take off out of that trench and run away. It's funny, but... Becoming a Christian is a lot like that comedy sketch. Hans, are we the baddies? Are we the baddies? It's like a switch has to be flipped on for us in our hearts and the lights turned on. Are we the baddies? Something that you never recognized before now becomes so glaringly obvious. There is no one good. No, not one, the Bible says. My self-reign is actually self-destructive. I'm not the hero in the story. I'm the bad guy. I'm the villain. I'm my own worst enemy. I need a hero. A hero who can save me from myself. I need a liberator who can overthrow the tyranny of my sinful desires that are making a mess of my life. This is the case for the worst of us, and it's the case for the best of us as well. When we get to Philippians chapter 3, we will, over the course of the summer, we'll see Paul describe himself, his life before Christ. He says that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. 
He was such a good religious rule keeper that no one could accuse him of any fault. But he discovered that instead of his rule keeping, recommending him to God, it was actually the very thing thing that was keeping him from God because it made him think he was one of the goodies instead of one of the baddies. Paul wasn't able to accept God's Savior because he was too busy trying to be his own Savior. Paul's in, in the trench moment came on a Damascus road with a blinding light and the voice of Jesus speaking. Oh, I see. I get it now. I'm one of the bad guys. I'm one of the baddies. Now, you can think that's funny as long as you realize that moment has to come for you as well. That has to be your moment. I remember when that moment came to me, looking down at my shoes, realizing I'm one of the bad guys. I'm one of the baddies. And I remember the joy that came shortly thereafter of realizing that God freely offered to me what I did not deserve in his son. In the gospel, Jesus takes upon himself our bad, our sin, our demerits, so that we might enjoy forever his good, his right standing, his reward before a a perfect father offering to him perfect obedience. That moment when you realize I'm one of the baddies, is, it has to come for us all. But we have to have that moment and then follow it with a joyful embracing of Jesus as all of our goodness. Yes, we are sinful. Yes, we are bad. But he is all our good. He is all our righteousness. That moment is the beginning of God's work in you, God's good work in you having won you over, having transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, won't he finish the work of bringing you all the way home? Yes, he will, right? Yes, he will. That's true for you. It's true for you on an individual level. But this verse is not written to you as an individual, is it? This promise is given to the church. The church. This is a corporate, you plural promise. There is a collective sense in which verse six is true. For I am convinced of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, plural, in y'all, in you, church in Philippi, He who began a good work in you, Alberta Baptist Church, will perfect it. He will finish it. He will complete it. Let me ask you this. Do you believe, church family, that God began a good work here? Shouldn't you believe then that God will perfect and complete it? In one sense, it doesn't matter what you believe because God is still at work. Even when we are full of doubts, he is still at work. But it does matter 
what you believe because our doubts have the power to rob us of our joy. It could easily have been this way with Paul. As he writes these words, he is imprisoned for preaching the gospel. But Paul's heart is captured by a bigger reality. I'm in chains, yes, but the gospel cannot be chained. I believe that more than the chains that are on my wrist. Jesus will take my imprisonment and he will work it for good. Jesus will take my seeming setbacks and he will transform them into gospel advances. What Paul believes enables his joy to win the victory over his circumstances. And guess what, brothers and sisters? The same is true for you. The same can be true for you. The the circumstances don't look as promising, perhaps, as they once did for us as a church. But we believe in a bigger promise that God is at work and he will finish what he set out to do. It's our joy, it's our privilege just to be a part of it, right? It's a privilege just to be a part of what God is doing. So let's all take a deep breath. (sighs) Alberta Baptist, take a deep breath and rejoice in the next season, the next hundred years of Alberta Baptist Church, Church, knowing God's got this. God's got this. It's his work. He started it. He will perfect it. Hard times aren't the sign of God's abandoning of his work. Hard times are more often the sign of God perfecting his work. What character in the Bible ever grew spiritually because the times were easy? Think about that. In fact, the cushiest, most prosperous life we see in the Bible is whose? Solomon's. And I don't think it ended very well for him, did it? I don't think it worked out super well. Soft and prosperous times didn't help him grow. David, his father, actually seemed to grow a lot more through his hardships than Solomon ever did through his prosperity. The times, 2020, 2021, may feel hard to you. You may feel like a wounded soldier trying to take the hill. You may feel like you've taken a lot of friendly fire. Let me tell you, friendly fire happened on D-Day. It did. It's a reality of war. But joy's confidence holds to a deeper reality still. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you collectively will complete his work. The mission will be a success. The hill will be taken. The war will be won. Even through the hardest of things, Jesus is extending his kingdom. Especially through the hardest of things, Jesus is extending his kingdom in us. That's how he works. Count it all joy when you encounter difficult things. Why? God's at work. 
He's refining your faith. Joy comes when we fix our eyes on that truth more than we fixate on our circumstances. Listen to me, ABC, and rejoice. The mission will be a success. He who began a good work in you will perfect it into the day of Christ Jesus. Let's go home today rejoicing in that confident hope. June 6, 1944, didn't dawn with any certainty a success. Noreen, the, the lady, 95-year-old widow that we've lived with in France for three years, uh, she was there on the cliffs of England, one of the few who knew what was happening, waving goodbye to those soldiers as they shipped off. She didn't know if they went away to victory or to defeat, but she did know that many whom she bid farewell to would never again return home. We met a D-Day tour guide once when we were on the beaches there who told us that he sometimes gave tours, it's rarer and rarer now, but he sometimes gave tours to veterans who actually landed on those beaches. And during those tours, they would see on the, on the beaches children playing and laughing, building sandcastles, families lounging about, eating sandwiches, sometimes in the very spots where their friends and fellow soldiers gave their lives. And the tour guide said he felt compelled to apologize for all the holiday making taking place on such a solemn site. But one of the DTA veterans stopped him saying, don't apologize to us. This is why we did it. This is why we did it. We call them the greatest generation. Why? Because they braved difficulties that were set in front of them so that those who come afterwards might enjoy the sun and the sand, a sandwich by the seaside without fear. They didn't choose their times, and we didn't choose ours. They did choose to take up a difficult task that was given to them, and that is what made them great. Look around you for a second. Look around you for a second and realize this, church. You have an opportunity to be ABC's greatest generation. To take up a difficult task and leave something better for those who will come behind you. Not everyone gets this opportunity, but you do. Be grateful. So, Will you resolve in your heart to take the hill? No matter how many ropes are cut or friends fall by your side, will you stick to the mission of making Jesus known in Alberta City and in Tuscaloosa and even to the ends of the earth? Will you resolve by God's grace to sink your roots down deep into Christian community, even if it hurts at times? God intends us to grow through the hard things, not uprooting ourselves again and again from community from, to community to community. What plant's going to grow like that? We won't grow like that. I truly believe that this could be ABC's greatest generation right now in this room. 
because I believe this joyful promise that he who began a good work in you, in y'all, in ABC, will complete it. 77 years ago, the fate of the world hung upon a small strip of sand in a place called Normandy where men laid down their lives to secure the freedom of those who would come after them. 2,000 years ago, the ultimate fate of the world hung upon a cross of wood in a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. It's where they crucified the baddies. But this one was the very goodness of God. His very radiance made flesh. He had his own hill to take and a mission from his father to save the baddies like you and me by dying in their place. The ultimate act of self-sacrifice that would restore us to God and would win our eternal life. On that hill 2,000 years ago, Christ, our captain, conquered both sin and death. What hill now is too hard to take? What beach is too long to storm? What enemies are too strong to withstand? What mission is too hard to endure? Christ, our captain, has already conquered all. Let's follow after him in his victory. Let's be the greatest generation for King Jesus that ABC has ever seen. We know not what storms may lie ahead, but Jesus has given us his joy for the journey in this precious promise. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for faith this morning. Faith to believe the promise. Faith to see that you are at work around us. You are at work in us. You are at work in our church. And you who began a good work will be faithful. You will complete it. Lord, may we rest joyfully in your scepter, having sway over our lives, over our church, over our state, over our country, over the world. Where is the world going? It is going to Jesus, ultimately. May our hearts rejoice that you are a king who holds all authority in heaven and on earth. And may we go from here with fresh confidence in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.